a, a, a person will falsely, uh, maliciously accuse another person of rape. What are some of the motives for that sort of, of behavior? Well, there can be many. Uh, I represented uh, a defendant in Las Vegas who was having an ongoing flirtation with a co-worker. Uh, actually, he happened to be the boss. She was his employee. But I had witnesses who all testified that they had seen them engage in conduct, you know, flirtation, and that there appeared to be some kind of, you know, sexual tension between the two of them. She was married. At some point in time, they had sex. Thereafter, she complained and said that it was rape. Why would someone make a false allegation? Uh, a married woman might, might feel guilt or shame that she succumbed to, to temptation. And then in order to try to rewrite it, I mean, the mind can, uh, I think it's, it's not uncommon for, you know, the subconscious perhaps to, you feel guilt, you feel shame, so you rewrite the story in your mind. Instead of, uh, I felt... Uh, some passion. I, I gave in to the passion. I wanted to have sex with him. It was, oh my God, I'm, I'm married. I can't be doing this. Wait a second. I didn't choose to do this. He raped me. So I think, and, and this was a case uh, where the jury found my client not guilty because they believed that she was consensually engaging in the sex. Um, and I think she was motivated uh, to fabricate the allegation to try to preserve her marriage thereafter. Um, some, so she, she may have been trying to get attention and sympathy from her husband? That's, that's a possibility. Or, or I mean, I, I suppose also uh, it may be a situation where he found out that she had, was having an affair and she tried to explain it by saying that she was raped. Uh, or perhaps her own inability to manage her shame and guilt and, and uh, knowing in terms of how she was going to process it, maybe she couldn't keep it to herself or was going to share it with her husband, or maybe she was looking for attention from her husband and to make her feel like she had been victimized by someone. I mean, who you, 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 you can't always know exactly what's going on in someone else's mind, but we do see situations where people will uh, make false allegations. Sometimes it could be that... Uh, a woman is vying for the attention of a man. Maybe she can't get his full attention. She knows that ultimately she's going to lose out and, and not um, succeed in winning his affection or attention. So she could do it out of spite. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's documented. It happens. I've seen it happen. I've seen juries acquit. Um, and from my perspective, I would say that rape allegations in particular are, are difficult cases for the prosecution to prove. For the state to successfully prosecute uh, a charge relating to fraud involving a homeowners association, they must prove uh, the requisite criminal intent beyond a reasonable doubt. So if a member of a homeowners board is, is taking someone out to dinner to discuss matters relating to the homeowners association, they may have had no intent to commit a fraud against the homeowners association. They may have used poor judgment. They may have spent money in a way that someone reviewing it might say um, was questionable. 
But does that does not necessarily mean that they actually had the intent to commit a fraud upon the homeowners association. And the board members of these homeowners associations are typically not paid anything at all. And they have to devote a lot of their personal time towards management of the homeowners association. And there are a lot of necessary and reasonable expenses that go along with that that may come under scrutiny, especially in this time where the market value of properties has decreased so much. We have a large number of vacancies, so the budgets of homeowners associations are somewhat constrained. And so you're seeing law enforcement and the district attorney's office or the attorney general's office devote a lot more time to scrutinizing the actions of members of homeowners association boards. It's really important to know that if you are a member of a homeowners board and you've spent a lot of time trying to make proper decisions to regulate your community, that just because you've been charged with a crime relating to homeowners association fraud, that does not mean that the prosecutorial agency will succeed in convicting you of that crime. It may be that if you're being scrutinized for your behavior, that an agreement can be made to, to pay monies back to the homeowners association in lieu of prosecution or in exchange for a dismissal of the charges. Or it may be that the state simply cannot prove that you had the requisite intent to defraud the homeowners. Or it may be that the prosecutorial agency waited too long to investigate and discover facts surrounding an allegation and the prosecution against you is barred by the statute of limitations. If you find yourself as a member or former member of a board of a homeowners association being scrutinized or questioned or investigators are asking questions to people and you think that you may become a suspect, call us at 702-DEFENSE. We'll give you a free consultation to talk about your legal options so that we can develop a winning legal strategy to put this behind you so you can move forward. Um, hey, this is Matt Cox and welcome to The Grind. Today I'm going to talk about uh, something that a lot of guys have asked me about, which is uh, basically being on federal, it's federal probation, or I mean, in my case, it's called uh, supervised release. So here's the way it works. Let's say you're convicted of a crime. Um, maybe you go to trial and you, you lose. and Or maybe you plead guilty because you just can't go to trial. You're just that guilty. The truth is, even if you go to... Even if you're not guilty and you go to, go to court, you're, you're probably got... Even if you, you, could, you could be just completely not guilty, you probably still have about a 60% chance of being found guilty maybe even more. So let's say you you end up taking a plea or 
you end up um, you end up getting found guilty at sentencing. So when after you've done your time or your sentence, let's put it this way: once you're sentenced, the judge will say, "Okay, you're going to get ten years," but when you're released, you're going to do five years. Basically, prisoners call it um, paper. So, but it's basically it's like it's they'll call it supervised release. So you're going to get five years supervised release or three years supervised release or whatever your specific judge says you're going to get. And then when you're on paper, there are certain there's it's called the judgment and commitment. You're governed by your judgment and commitment, and the person that's in charge of making sure you follow all the rules is your probation officer. So, in my case, I'm currently on what's called supervised release, and which is basically it's just probation. You have a probation officer; it's just what they call it. Um, so, I'm on federal. Supervised release and my judgment commitment says that it, for instance, in my case, in my case, you know, I have to tell them, like, when I first got off, uh, I had to see a court ordered um, therapist once, once a week. Uh, I also have to, because I owe restitution, I have. I have an annual uh, financial af- uh, financial affidavit that I have to fill out. Uh, every month, I have to provide my bank statements for all bank accounts. I'm not allowed to take out new credit of any kind, no new credit cards, new credit lines, nothing like that, not without permission. Um, I have to notify them where I'm going to live. I have I for the first year or so I had to do random there were random urine tests even though I don't have a drug case I had to do random urine tests so uh, that lasted for about a year and I also had to pay restitution because I owed almost six million dollars in in a re- restitution because I had a bank fraud case. So, what happens, the way the restitution is paid back is this. My judgment and commitment says that the, the light is changing. It's because I don't have a ring light or anything with me. So, I'm using basically the TV as my light. And there's a commercial, so I'm changing colors. So, I have to pay restitution per my judgment and commitment. And it's always different. It really just depends on what the judge says. And I know guys that owe five, ten million dollars, and the judge says you have to pay ten percent of everything you make um, over to the government to redistribute to your victims. Let's say, assuming you have victims, and in my case, my judge said that I have to pay a hundred and fifty dollars every single month, no matter what. Anything I make over $2,000 a month, I have to pay 25%. So 
So if I make $2,000, I pay $150. If I make $3,000, I have to pay $400. So I have to pay the $150 plus 25% of the extra $1,000. So that comes to $400. If I make $4,000 in a month, that means I have to pay the $150 plus the 25% of the extra thousand or, or plus 25% of the extra $2,000. So that ends up being $650 I would have to pay every single, every month. And, and they also get to look at my bank statements and my credit report and those sort of things. For, for instance, when I first got out, I was able to buy a vehicle, but I wasn't able to get a alone. Um, later, my car was falling apart and I had to go to my probation officer and I had to ask her if I could get a new loan. And so from there, um, that's when I realized like we closed it out. I got that behind me. And then I started figuring out, um, you know, me, I worked in banks. So like knowing all the bank procedures, but I know I can't go back if this holds above me, you know, I couldn't do it while I was fighting the case. Mm -hmm. So at that point, that's when really I started really learning and digging into credit because I had to figure out like, yo, I have to now have my own group, my financial backing because there's nowhere else for me to get, you know, I can't go to work kind of money. I want to make, I can't go to work. So I need some kind of fund, some kind of trust fund behind me. And I started digging into credit, really getting heavy into that. Um, and then leveraging everything I did working at the banks and ended up actually even going back to a bank, getting back in and, and kind of helping people. And then that's when the credit stuff started because I couldn't work a job because I was used to making money already. That's crazy, man. Cause I mean, I read your story. It was like, you've always been an entrepreneur. And so to even have the 60,000 to beat that, that, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Um, so, did, was no, there I had to make payments. <laughs> I gonna, I'm not going to front. I mean, no, I had that. to make I had to make payments uh, to get it done. Yeah, I mean, but, even that. But yeah, I mean, that's one of those things where it's like sometimes everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. Well, I, not even sometimes. Everything always happens for a reason, right? And mm -hmm. it's like, um, like you said, between the ages of 18 and 25, especially for anybody, but especially young men, especially black men, mm -hmm. it's very tempting. You have a lot of temptations. You have music. You have just the culture, society, and a lot of times, you know, we want to get to the finish line a lot quicker than we should with our parents, what our grandparents would advise us. And, you know, a hard head makes a soft ass. That's, yeah. that's just you know, I, I, was, I, I was actually thinking, like, <laughs> yo, life is fast, I'm choosing to move quicker. Yeah. And then on the other part, it was like, we always talk about this on the show. We like, yo, change is cool to cop, but more important is lawyer fees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is like well, you gotta prime yeah, example. Shout out to Hov. Yeah. But but yeah. the the shining light in that for me is that you you know saying that you was in the financial space and me being in the financial space. I know anything on your record like that, it prohibits you from a lot. like ever really working in the financial space. So it's mm -hmm. like so now you forced to kind of figure it out. You still have a financial space mind, but. Yeah. If that didn't happen, you probably would have just been a regular corporate worker, maybe. 
But now you have to like kind of force yourself and to be like an entrepreneur on the credit side and learn credit. And then that blossomed into yeah. where you are now. So learning what happened was, is that I thought I said, listen, my goal wasn't even getting credit. I started learning. I learned credit when I was 18. Um, my broker, my real estate broker had a credit repair company. I did all the underwriting. But my goal when I started messing with credit, I go, okay, I need to get mine together. Right. So I start focusing on my credit, figuring it out. And when everything happened, I never like literally the day was January 4th. Um, it was January 4th, 2015. Um, when the case closed and was done. January 20th, I started my credit repair company. Between that time, I was figuring out what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? I started messing with my credit. And then I said, well, I'm going to help other people. And I remember putting it out there like, yo, I'm going to help other people with their credit. Right. I'm leveraging mine. I figured it out. See, people need it. I remember I, I made 11,000 first month. Boom. I go, okay, I got something. Start slowing down. And I remember like leveraging, like starting to build my credit up and figuring out what's the benefits because I knew it was more, it had to be more than get a, buy a house, buy a car and get a credit card just for emergency purposes. I'm like, nah, it's more to this. This has to be worth more than just this, what it is on the simple, on the surface. That's where it started to like flourish. And I started digging deep into like, yo, how do I really go and get money? If I want to get credit card and I want to get funded and fund my own business, where do I, how do I get the money? So, so in 2015, right, you said January, mm -hmm. what type of things are you doing to leverage your credit at this point or in the beginning? Now, at the beginning, I was trying to make money. Okay. So that was, that was the business. That was the business that I had, um, helping people, showing them how to make money. So when it came from, like, I remember working in the banks, helping, helping people with it and they still couldn't get approved. Mm. So then at that point I'm going, I'm looking now and that's when I start really publicly helping people versus like, you know, when I was working before, when I'm working in the bank, going through all my trials, um, I could help people, but it was quiet. It wasn't like a marketed company. So now it's out publicly and I'm working it and it started bringing in. So now I'm going, okay, this is my business. I'm making money off of it. I have good credit now. Okay. What's the benefits and perks of it? Gotcha. Yeah. That's, and then at that point, that's when I started. Here in Northern Nevada, we've had a great deal of success in fighting solicitation charges on behalf of our clients. We'll fight with the officers actually collected the evidence and preserved it properly if they want to use it against you in court. For instance, they often will send the offers and acceptance for the solicitation over text messages, and they will take photos of those text messages, but you can fight the foundation of when was the text message sent, who sent the text message, was it even you who sent it? Also, you can fight the audio recordings, or sometimes they lose the audio recordings, if you are charged with a solicitation, it's unfortunate, but the local newspaper likes to print up the mugshots and with their names of people who've been arrested and charged with solicitation. 
We here at the Las Vegas Defense Group fight very hard to keep that out of the newspapers by doing and averting what we call a book and release. So you may just pay a fine only and the matter goes away. Speaking about protecting our kids, it's something that we hear more and more about. Teachers getting caught having inappropriate relationships with students. A lot of people may find it confusing because the age of consent in Nevada is 16, but the law is different when it comes to teachers and students. Michael Becker of Las Vegas Defense Group is here with an explanation. Can you explain what this difference is? Yes, and the law applies not only to teachers, but anybody who works at a school. In essence, notwithstanding the fact that the age of consent in Nevada is 16, a teacher or an employee of a school cannot have sexual relationships with a student regardless of age. That's really interesting because I think some people get confused with that. Now, if a teacher does behave inappropriately with a student, what are the consequences for that teacher? Well, there are consequences for the teacher and the student, but the teacher could face administrative, civil, or criminal legal problems. The teacher could get fired, suspended, they could get sued, and they could also get prosecuted criminally. Now, what exactly, what type of sexual harassment complaints against teachers are most common that you're seeing? Well, we're seeing everything ranging from relationships that carry over from the classroom to outside of school where teachers are uh, texting with students, meeting up with students, having unwanted physical contact with students, to situations where there's actual uh, sexual activity, including intercourse going on between teachers or school employees and students. Now, you mentioned lawsuits before. If a student it feels that they are harassed or involved in an inappropriate relationship with a teacher or someone that works at a school and they do their parents they want to file a lawsuit what do they do how do they they go about that well i mean obviously if a student is in distress and they're in a situation in a school where they're feeling discomfort the first step might be to go uh, either to your parents or to the principal's office and make a complaint after that, um, a lawyer could actually bring a lawsuit against either the teacher or the school district or oh, both. Okay. Now, let's take it from the other side. Let's look at it from a teacher's perspective. What if you're a teacher and you are accused of having an inappropriate relationship with a student and you are innocent? What's the first thing that you should do when you find out about this? Well, it, it's really important that you that a teacher either contacts their union representatives or an attorney because a teacher has the right to have representation quiet, uh, prior to questioning both by the school and by law enforcement who will ultimately take over these investigations. Some really, really good information. Thank you so much. For more info, give Las Vegas Defense Group a call. They obviously have the answers that you need. 702-DEFENSE, or you can visit their website um, right there on the screen. There you go. We're gonna take a break. We'll be right back.
I'm Nevada criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. There are a lot of misconceptions about what constitutes statutory rape in Nevada. Plus, the law recently changed. Here are five things you need to know about statutory sexual seduction, which is the legal term for statutory rape in Nevada. 1. Under NRS 200.364, statutory sexual seduction occurs when an adult 18 or older has sex with a 15 or 14-year-old and the adult is at least four years older than the child. Therefore, an 18-year-old can have lawful sexual intercourse with a 15-year-old because the age difference is only three years. 2. Statutory sexual seduction laws apply not only to vaginal intercourse, but to all types of sexual conduct involving penetration. 3. It is not a defense to statutory sexual seduction charges that the adult didn't know that the child was underage, if the child lied about his or her age, or if the child initiated the sex. 4. When the defendant is 21 or older, statutory sexual seduction is prosecuted as a Category B felony. The penalty is 1 to 10 years in prison and the possibility of up to $10,000 in fines. When the defendant is under 21, statutory sexual seduction is typically prosecuted as a gross misdemeanor carrying a maximum of 364 days in jail and a fine of up to $2,000. And five, a statutory sexual seduction conviction does require that the defendant register as a sex offender. If you or a loved one is facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE for a free consultation. The attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group are here to fight for the best resolution possible in your case. I lose my business, I had a, a relationship break, bomb. Why, why did the Boost Mobile business crash, you think? Not being prepared. Mm. Not having the financial background, not understanding financial literacy, right? So, and the several things mindset, right? Then I take a step back. Is that, remember I said in high school I sold cars. Mm -hmm. Well, it was three of us that hung together. One that still is there, the other one came to Atlanta. Right. We lived here together. <clears throat> I never told this story. Um, he committed suicide. So Why? I'm living do here. Know? Do you know what happened? Money. You understand that we come out of poverty-stricken uh, environments, right? So. We start making money. Through the store? No, we're making money cars. Gotcha, gotcha. He owned a landscaping company, right? So his landscaping company was doing about 10000 a month. We move here. He thought he can just come and operate it here. California, if you buy a car, you keep the license plate till the tags expire. Mm -hmm. 
In Georgia, they take the license plate. We didn't know. He literally spends 15, 16 grand on a van, mm -hmm. already pre-built out. He doesn't have license, can't get license. So he buys the van, it got the tag on it. He thought it was good for almost a year. So he buys the van. Two days later, he gets pulled over in Georgia. They take you to jail. Mm -hmm. For sure. He went to jail. Had to bail him out. 16 grand gone. Out of there. Nothing to do. Oh, because he can't get the car out of impound if you don't have a if you don't have insurance. You can't get insurance without a license. Gone. Running to um, going through that, trying to figure it out. Um, but as men, pride, ego, young boys, doesn't say I'm struggling. Mm. Never says I can't pay rent. Decides to just up and leave the day before rent is due. Disappear. Going back about I want to say a month and a half, we communicated a little bit, but kind of find out he was like sleeping on the martyr and at the airport. Wow. Not wanting to say what was going on. So he didn't even go back home to California. He just. Nah, I thought he left. I didn't know he was here. Lindbergh, um, he committed suicide laid on the train tracks at Lindbergh, committed suicide early morning, cold December, December 15th. So, mm, 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 mm. You know. How does all that affect you, man? Cause you, like these are people that you see point blank. Cause I've, I've had people pass away, but not in front of me. Yeah. I've never seen someone Die. Like my dad passed away, but it wasn't in front of me. Or, like I I don't have any situations where my 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 cousin he 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 died. He got shot, but it wasn't in front of me. Like you're see you're seeing this stuff like in really really close proximity to you. So close friends like seeing it unfold. That was the most traumatic time because at that point, what happens is is that. I go into a depression mode because this is all I got. So it's like, yo, this is my iron sharpened iron. He thinks 10 steps ahead of me before I can bust my move. He's calling out my next place. Mm. This my guy. So at that point, I'm like, yo, I'm by myself. Wow. Coming back, um, from the funeral, go back, I come back home, and I just remember looking out the window, literally listening to Nipsey Hussle, and going, just get it by any means necessary, put it on the line. Mm. That's what I did, I just put it on the line, but I look at it and I go, I lost my best friend because of and nobody taught us money. We learned how to make money 
but nobody taught us what to do. Yeah. We had nobody to look to and go, what do we do with our money? Yeah. We got 10, 15,000 sitting and eventually we just blow it off and spend it off and take L's and nobody's teaching us. So that's why financial literacy is so important to me as well, is that I go, I fell at another business and I go, I have to learn money. Mm-hmm. Get into it and I go, my whole thing is that when I- Are you, at what point did you know you're on the secret service wanted list? Like at what point was oh, it when you're like, okay, oh my gosh, these guys are really after me. Oh yeah, I had, uh, I'd gone to, well when they came to get me, it was, I, it was a sheriff's deputy that came and told me, look, FBI's formed a task force. Well, there was a task force formed by the FDLE, Florida, Florida Department of Law Enforcement. They handed it to the FBI. There was already, on, I'm already on probation. Remember, I told you I got, I had lost the mortgage company. I started this huge scam, went for about a year and a half, two years, got $11.5 million, or borrowed $11.5 million. We're all making good money. But suddenly on like a Thursday, this, F, this uh, sheriff's deputy shows up and says, listen, I used to date this chick on the, uh, works for Tampa PD. He was with Hillsborough County. He said she came to me because I'd done a bunch of loans for him came to him in the morning, early one morning, like six o'clock in the morning, and said, look, your buddy Matt Cox is gonna be arrested in the next few days. I worked on a task force, we just handed it over to the FBI. They're gonna arrest him in the next couple days. So he tells me that on a Thursday. So I have literally an hour left in the day and the whole next day to get out as much cash as I can, because I'm thinking I'm leaving. I'm already on federal probation. The judge is not gonna be happy. So I'm definitely going to prison. I can't go to prison. Look at me. I mean, I'm too cute to go to prison. This is not going to work out well for me. So, I mean, I've seen Shawshank. I know what happened. So I'm ready to take off. So I, <laughs> within, within, uh, within a, a day or so, I get like 80 grand out in cash. This is the one you were talking about. Yeah. Right. So I... Go straight to, I've got this girl with me named uh, uh, Rebecca Halk. I'd been dating her a couple months. I barely know her. She desperately wants to come with me. She's in love. She's wonderful. Everything's great. And she was. She had held it together pretty pretty well for a couple months. And she knows what's going on. Oh, she knows 100% okay, what's going got on. got it. And so we take off. I don't realize that she's bipolar. She's not taking her meds. She's within, right, we're not even out before we start, we're at each other's throat. She's nuts. So I get 80 grand out. We take off on the run. We go straight to Atlanta. We rent a house. I satisfy the loan on the house. I borrow about $400,000. I pull the cash out of the bank. It's funny because I was thinking a minute ago, um, I was thinking one of the stories I was going to say tell you was that uh, one time I had gone to ca- I was cashing checks for like eighty for like eight thousand nine thousand trying to stay under the ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars and so at one point I get a check for like twenty nine grand and I think man this is ridiculous you know I'm sick of this we're going in here and here it's going to take another month so I said I'm going to ca- start cashing larger checks and she's like that's don't don't do it and I said no it's okay. I'm going to cash it. So I go in. I had stolen a guy's name by the name of Scott Cugno, and I'd gotten an Alabama 
driver's license issued to him. So I have a real ID. I have a real social, a real ID. Everything's real. So I go in the bank, give him the cashier's check that had been issued by the title company when I refinanced the property. I had him issue the title, the checks in a different guy's names. Larger amounts, one of them was 29 grand. A lot, most of them were eight or 9,000, one was 29. So I go in, I say, hey, my name's Scott Cugno, I need to cash this check. They go, well, that's odd. And I was like, well, okay. They said, why don't you put it in your bank? And I said, well, because my bank's in Florida and they're gonna hold it for who knows how long. This was 15 years ago. So they go, well, this doesn't make sense. And I go, well, you know, this is a cash transaction bank. You can give me that. Yeah, we do larger. Tra- okay, let me t- let me t- let's talk to the manager. Manager comes out. He says, okay. He said, what's going on? I said, look, I, I need to cash the check. And he goes, okay. So he takes the check and my ID and my credit card and he leaves. And I remember Becky, the girl I was on the run with, she calls me up. She's calling, what are you doing? I go, well, what's taking so long? What the guy's being in a jerk. He's, he's waiting. He's doing verifications and stuff. I don't know. She's like, okay, well, I go, look, if the cops show up outside, call me. And so I hang up. We wait. We wait. Guy comes back and he goes, okay, Mr. Mr. Cugno, I have a question for you. He said, uh, how did you get the check issued to you? And I went, well, it, it was issued... A guy refinanced his house and he paid me the check. Okay, why? And I went, well, not that it, you know, it wasn't in any of his business, but it wasn't a hard question. So I'm like, I'm trying to alleviate the, his anxiety. So I, I said, well, I'm, I'm adding an addition onto his house and this is part of the draw. And he goes like, that makes sense. It does make sense. And I was like, right. He goes, okay. He leaves. Five minutes later, she's still calling. What's going on? I don't know. He's, he's got my stuff. He's, we get out of there. No, I can't. He's got my stuff. I can't leave. Hang up. He comes back. He goes, um, what are you going to do with cash? And I go, are you serious? And he goes, well, I'm just, you know, it's, it's just, I feel apprehensive about this. And I went, uh, well, I'm going to cash a lot of the guy's checks. We give them checks and they don't have bank accounts because, you know, they... <laughs> Todd Miles says, I remember you came to Strawberries in Lafayette, Louisiana with GD. He shot us out. Yeah, I remember that. Strawberries. Oh, man. It, that was a popping club. Lafayette. A popping club. I mean, popping literally and figuratively speaking, yeah. Used to be some fights and shootouts around there. Dude, here, I think that thing had like at least a decade run. Dude made some money in that place. Hey, Brian, if you don't like the show, you can always bounce, kick rock, sucker. In fact, I'll help you out. Take this block. We're talking about zero tolerance for for uh, for for BS, fam. Zero tolerance. I don't play no games with them, fam. 
I get them out of there. No games. Quint, you dig? I don't, I don't play no games with them. But I, I did forgot to tell him his mama should be embarrassed and his daddy should have pulled out. Should have told him. But but he already know, I'm sure. I'm sure his last boyfriend told him. Yeah, did y'all hear about Rudy Giuliani getting COVID? Y'all think he's going to make it? Probably won't. He looked like he got COVID. He looked like he had COVID before he got COVID. In fact, his face looked like COVID. If COVID was a human, it would be Rudy Giuliani. That's what it would look like. His whole face looked like a big old pulse, like a sore, like an open wound. Mika, what's up? What's up, Nubian Queen? No more. Greg Anderson, what's up, Greg? Pauline Conway. Perry M. You know, uh, Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump have a strange, strange relationship. I mean, very strange. Remember, um, what's up, Justin Murfield? Appreciate you. Appreciate you, King. Remember that, like, skit him and uh, Donald Trump did with Rudy Giuliani had a dress on and a wig and earrings and lipstick, you know, cross-dressing. And Trump was acting, they, they kissed or act like they were kissing. I can't remember if they kissed, but if they didn't kiss on screen, if they didn't kiss on screen, then, you know, it was always an opportunity off screen, right? Fam. I just don't have no homeboys that I play with like that. You know, I don't have no homeboys like that. I don't have no friends like that, that play like that. Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani. In fact, you see why they was friends. You know, Giuliani was one of the worst mayors in the history of the United States of America, probably the history of the world. Not probably one of the worst in the history of the world. Rudy Giuliani, he was a horrible mayor. But Trump didn't have a problem with him. In fact, let me look at his time. 
Rudy. Gucci Mane, the father of trap music. Over the course of Gucci's legendary career, he dropped a total of 72 mixtapes and 12 studio albums. That impressive catalog has amassed him millions of fans worldwide, as well as millions of dollars. Besides his music, Gucci Mane was also really well known for his wild antics he did while being in the limelight. Whether that was getting an ice cream cone tattooed on his face, or attacking people with pool sticks, people just always knew not to mess with Gucci Mane. Gucci was arrested approximately nine times during his hip-hop career, and spent over four years incarcerated. Want to know more about Gucci Mane's nine arrests that happened during his career? Well, we have you covered. Here is an exclusive inside look at the criminal history of Gucci Mane. Gucci Mane's first documented arrest as a rapper happened on May 19, 2005. While beefing with rival rapper Young Jeezy, five men attempted to rob Gucci Mane after Jeezy put a $10,000 bounty out on Gucci's ice cream cone chain in his diss song of Gucci Mane called Stay Strapped. Reports claim that the five men ambushed Gucci, but he managed to acquire a gun while scrambling to defend himself. Gucci then began to fire at the robbers and ended up killing one of them in the process. The man was Henry Clark III, who is mostly known as Pookie Lok. The body of Pookie Lok was eventually found three days later at a local middle school. After the recovery of Pookie Lok's body, DeKalb County put a warrant out for Gucci Mane's arrest. The charge against Gucci Mane was first-degree murder. On May 29, 2005, Gucci Mane turned himself into DeKalb County Jail where he claimed that he shot Pookie Lok in self-defense. Gucci later posted a $100,000 bail on May 24, 2005 and dropped his debut album Trap House the same day. In January of 2006, the murder charges against Gucci Mane were dropped due to insufficient evidence. Gucci Mane's second arrest occurred in July of 2005. Authorities say that they arrested Gucci for an assault that happened earlier that month. Gucci Mane allegedly got in a heated altercation with a club promoter at the offices of Big Cat Records, which was the label that Gucci was signed to back in 2005. As the argument escalated, Gucci Mane struck the club promoter with a pool stick and continued to do so after he fell to the ground. After the arrest, Gucci Mane's lawyer claimed the accusations against Gucci were false and he wasn't even involved in the reported fight. During sentencing in October of 2005, Gucci Mane pled no contest to the charges, but was found guilty. The two charges Gucci was found guilty for was aggravated assault and aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. The judge sentenced Gucci Mane to six months in prison and six and a half years of probation following Gucci's release. Gucci also agreed to pay for the club promoter's medical bills, which totaled about $3,000. Here's a little fun fact. 
During Gucci Mane's stay in prison for these charges, Gucci found out that his murder charge from May was dismissed. A huge weight was lifted off of his shoulders when he found out about this news, and it probably made the rest of those six months fly by. Gucci's third arrest happened in September of 2008. As one of Gucci Mane's punishments for his 2005 assault case, Gucci was ordered to do 600 hours of community service. Gucci, being the hard-working man he is, must not have found any time to do this, because he was eventually arrested for only completing 25 out of the 600 hours of community service he was ordered to do. The failure to fulfill those orders made Gucci Mane in violation of his probation and was ultimately sentenced to six months in Fulton County Jail. Gucci was released in March of 2009. Gucci's fourth arrest happened in November of 2009 when he was due back in court. At the court hearing, Gucci Mane was found to be in violation of his probation once again and ended up leaving the courtroom in handcuffs. Gucci Mane stayed in jail until May of 2010. During his time in jail, Gucci dropped his first major label album titled The State vs. Radrick Davis on December 8th with the help of Warner Brothers Records. A year after his last arrest, Gucci Mane was arrested for a fifth time after an off-duty police officer noticed a white Hummer driving recklessly down Northside Drive. The off-duty officer reported what he saw to other police in the area and began to search for the vehicle. Local police ended up tracking down the white Hummer at a body shop a few miles away. Inside, they came across Gucci Mane and another individual arguing. When the officers attempted to intervene, Gucci Mane ignored the officers and punched the man he was arguing with. Officers immediately pepper sprayed Gucci and arrested him on the spot. Gucci Mane was booked under several charges including damage to government property, obstruction, driving without a license, reckless driving, running a red light or stop sign, failure to maintain a lane, and driving on the wrong side of the road. The charges were later dropped, but Gucci Mane still received another probation violation for his actions. In court, Gucci pled mental incompetence to the charges, claiming that he was in no state to fight prosecutors. Gucci was then released while the court- prosecutor painted a picture of Campbell as a violent felon, not a well-intentioned media figure. He has over 20 arrests and two felony convictions, but his attorney says he put those problems in his past and is now out to help others. I think um, what's made Daryl, and people know him as Taxstone, so popular is that he's able to reach audiences that traditionally people can't. At Montgomery's request, the judge approved a bail package for half a million dollars that also includes house arrest. As for Troy Ave, he remains free on bail on attempted murder and weapons possession charges. In Lower Manhattan, I'm Lisa Evers, Fox 5 News.